God, make speed to save me. O Lord, make haste to help me, to help me, to help me, to help me. O God, make speed to save me. O Lord, make haste to help me, to help me. Hi, I'm Derek Olson, creator of St. Bede Productions. I'm an Episcopal layman with a Ph.D. in New Testament and a passion for the intersection of liturgy and scripture. Welcome to episode 12 of the St. Bede Psalmcast, a podcast about the Psalms in the Revised Common Lectionary, reading them in the context of the Sunday service and alongside the Church Fathers. Now, normally, we would be talking about the psalm appointed for track 2 of Proper 7 in Year C, which is a portion from Psalm 22. However, we're going to do something a little different today. Back a bit before Holy Week, I started writing a show on the Passion Psalms, as I thought that would be a perfect intro into Holy Week. But it was around that same time that things got really crazy here at my house, and that episode never got finished or recorded. When I saw that Psalm 22 was appointed for this Sunday, and since Psalm 22 is one of the central Passion Psalms, I thought I'd go ahead and return to that material. So, really quickly, for this upcoming Sunday, we're going to hear the story of the Gerasene demoniac from Luke, and from looking at the Isaiah text, and also the particular section of Psalm 22 that has been excerpted, it looks like the Revised Common Lectionary is inviting us to hear this section of the psalm in the mouth of the demoniac, as he was beset by a whole host of trials and tribulations and demons, but finally was freed from them by the God who deserves his praise. So, with that out of the way, I want to give some specific focus to a particular grouping which we refer to as the Psalms of the Passion. In Back in episode 9, I touched a bit on the penitential psalms, and in doing so, referred to some other important groups of psalms, including the Psalms of the Passion. As I took a look at the Psalms of the Passion, I realized that this is one of those areas where the tradition, quote-unquote, does not speak with a single voice. There are a couple of lists out there, and I'd suggest not only that, but there are some other psalms that could easily fall into this category that aren't necessarily on the traditional lists. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and start with Cassiodorus, and then go on from there. Just a quick word of clarification. I'm going to be listing a number of psalms here, uh, from Cassiodorus and from other sources as well. I will be listing these following the Hebrew numbering which is the one that we see in the Book of Common Prayer uh, and that most modern English language Bibles follow. Uh, so I'm not going to be referring to the Vulgate and the Septuagint numbering here. I'm using the Hebrew. All right. Cassiodorus identifies Psalms 2, 22, 35, 55, 69, and 109 as being, quote, clear and obvious prophecy, end quote, concerning both the Passion and the Resurrection. When he identifies these psalms, he's not just pointing out that there may be a verse which has a particular application. Instead, he's seeing broader themes here. In talking about Psalm 55, for example, he says this, quote, So, as we said in discussing Psalm 35, we must investigate the pattern of this psalm as it is ordered beforehand. First, it was uttered by the Lord Christ. Second, it began with a prayer. Third, it recounted the events of the Lord's Passion. Fourth, it harmonized with the words of the Gospel in echoing truth. Fifth, it concluded with the great hope of the faithful. 
So there is no doubt that the present psalm accorded with the canons which were laid down earlier. End quote. So he's seeing these psalms as being clear and sure pointers to both the passion and the resurrection in broad and thematic terms as well as passing references. Cassiodorus is important, not just as an original interpreter, which he was, but also as a collector of the traditions that had gone before him. So where does this tendency come from, this habit of collecting together like psalms into discrete groups? I don't find this in the principal authors of the West. Thus, you don't see this tendency in either Augustine or Jerome. Where I do see it, though, is in Athanasius. In the letter to Marcellinus, of which I've spoken before, Athanasius writes on the Psalms as a whole, and within that work does a couple of different drive-bys through the Psalter, sorting various Psalms into various categories. One of these deals directly with the Passion. Here's what Athanasius writes. Uh, remember, the, the frame that Athanasius gives to this letter is that it's a conversation that he had with an unnamed desert father. Uh, whether that's actually the case or whether this is the direct opinion of Athanasius is hard to say. In any case, this is what he says. Quote, Having thus shown that Christ should come in human form, the Psalter goes on to show that he can suffer in the flesh, he is assumed. It is of foreseeing how the Jews would plot against him that Psalm 2 sings, Why do the heathen rage and the people meditate vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and their rulers took counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. And Psalm 22, speaking in the Savior's own person, describes the manner of his death. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death, for many dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have laid siege to me. They pierced my hands and my feet. They numbered all my bones. They gazed and stared at me. They parted my garments among them and cast lots for my vesture. They pierced my hands and my feet. What else can that mean except the cross? And Psalms 88 and 69, again speaking in the Lord's own person, tell us farther that he suffered these things, not for his own sake, but for ours. Thou hast made thy wrath to rest upon me, says the one, and the other adds, I paid them things I never took. For he did not die as being himself liable to death. He suffered for us and bore in himself the wrath that was the penalty of our transgression. End quote. So Athanasius identifies Psalms 2, 22, 69, and 88 in this quick look. Then we've got a couple of later traditions in the West. One tradition, uh, which I referred to when we looked at Psalm 30 last time, takes the whole block from Psalm 22 up until Psalm 31 as a passion section. The idea here is that you start with Psalm 22.1, which is the cry of dereliction from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you go all the way up through the last words of Jesus, as recorded by Luke from Psalm 31.5, Into your hands I commend my spirit. You find this in some of the medieval books of ours, and then that tradition crosses into English language sources from there, into the Sarum primers, which continue this particular arrangement. However, there's also a different tradition in the air, because Henry VIII's primer, uh, English, both English and, and Latin language primer, breaks from the tradition of the earlier English primers and instead prints as the Psalms of the Passion, Psalms 2, 22, 59, 69, and 88. To that lineup 
some also will add Psalm 38. And uh, those six, that's the lineup that's presented as the six Passion Psalms in the St. Dunstan Psalter, which is a terrific resource if you're interested in traditional language Anglican liturgy. Um, I asked one of the editors where this list came from, uh, and he actually didn't remember himself. So I have no doubt that it was a traditional one that was floating around uh, and, and still has currency in some sources. So to recap... There isn't really one authoritative set of Psalms of the Passion out there. There are several sets. Uh, They certainly all agree on Psalm 2, 22, and 69. Psalm 88 has strong representation too, and then Psalms 31, 35, 38, 55, and 109 show up at points as well. I'm a little surprised that Psalm 31 doesn't show up more, Uh, and that Psalm 41 doesn't appear on any list, but that's just the way that it goes. So, why do we call these the Passion Psalms, and what is important about them? And what would we want to know about these as as we enter Holy Week or, or other times of the year like that? There are three major answers to this. The first is thematic. There are specific themes that run throughout these psalms that we also find running through all four passion narratives of the Gospels. The second is content. There are details that pop up, linking certain psalm passages with certain details recorded in the Gospels. The third is the book of Acts. I don't know if you've noticed this, but a whole lot of the preaching in the Acts of the Apostles either starts with a psalm quotation or connects to an image from the psalms. A lot of the psalms, uh, a lot of the sermons of Peter, in particular, in the first section of Acts, are early Christian teachings about the person, life, work, death, and resurrection of Jesus grounded in the Psalter. And these references weren't lost on the church fathers, who followed them up and expanded on them. Let's unpack some of these as we look at some of the psalms identified by the tradition. I think the obvious psalms to start with are Psalms 22 and 69, specifically because they have both thematic and content-specific material. In talking about Psalm 22, Cassiodorus sees the connection between the psalm and the passion of Christ so closely that he says this, quote, Though many of the psalms briefly recall the Lord's passion, none has described it in such apt terms, so that it appears not so much as prophecy but is history. End quote. Psalm 22 is a classic individual lament psalm. Thus, we have the expression of an individual pouring out their pain and describing the state of their current tribulation. Also, like most lament psalms, it also includes praise and hopeful phrases, showing a confidence that God will indeed deliver the individual from this current state. Specifically, it begins with tribulation and then moves to praise which Cassiodorus and others read largely as a a passage from passion to resurrection. Detail-wise, we've got a whole bunch in here, which is what prompts Cassiodorus to say that this seems more like history than prophecy. First, it begins with the words reported as the great cry from the cross, reported as the last words of Jesus in Matthew and Mark, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A lot of ink has been spilled by theologians of various kinds and qualities talking about the abandonment of Christ by God and such as a result of these words. 
I won't say that there's not a place for that, but the appropriate and responsible starting place for all of these discussions must be a clear acknowledgement that these words are a citation from this particular psalm. It's not just a random expression of angst from Jesus. There's a clear biblical referent here. Second, in verses 7 and 8, the psalm refers to those who see him in his trials and who mocked him. Not only do we have this vignette in the crucifixion accounts, but Matthew records the chief priests and scribes using the exact words of verse 8. Quote, he trusted in the Lord, let him deliver him. End quote. Third, we get a vivid description of the physiological agony of the psalmist in verses 14 and 15. In particular, verse 15 describes thirst. Uh, quote, my mouth is dried out like a potsherd, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and you have laid me in the dust of the grave. End quote. Of course, there's a thirst connection in the passion uh, that we'll come back to a little bit later. Fourth, verse 16 is the one we saw Athanasius making explicit reference to. Uh, you have both the presence of en enemies all around, con continuing that train of thought from verses 12 and 13, but also the very explicit detail, they pierce my hands and my feet. Fifth, verse 17 has another classic passion detail. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. So, just a quick walk through Psalm 22 shows five very significant points of contact with the Gospel accounts of the Passion. Switching over to Psalm 69 now, again, this is a standard individual lament psalm that begins in tribulation and ends with praise. First, we have references to large number of enemies at several points, but also the specific detail of the psalmist's people turning against him in verse 9. Quote, I have become a stranger to my own kindred, an alien to my mother's children. End quote. This is read as a reference to the Judean leadership turning against Jesus and inciting the crowds against him, particularly given the next verse, which is our second point. Verse 10 is, quote, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. The scorn of those who scorn you has fallen on me. End quote. John's Gospel connects this verse with the cleansing of the temple episode, which in the synoptics, so Mark, Matthew, and Luke, occurs right after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and is often seen as the last straw for the Jerusalem elites. Third, recalling the thirst motif from Psalm 22, we have this psalm's verse 23, quote, They gave me gall to eat, and when I was thirsty, they gave me vinegar to drink. End quote. And, of course, we have the offering of vinegar, uh, or sour wine, uh, to Jesus on the cross. So, these are the sorts of content details that we're talking about, and that we see a, the greatest clusters of them in, in these two psalms. As we look across other identified passion psalms, there are frequently other details that tie in. Things like false and malicious witnesses, as in Psalm 35, 11, and 12, as well as Psalm 41, verses 6 and 7, mocking from onlookers, as in Psalm 35, verses 21 and 25, and Psalm 40, verse 16. Psalm 55 has a fairly lengthy section on betrayal by a close friend, uh, from verses 13 to 23. We also see a bit of this in Psalm 41, verse 9 as well. Quote, Even my best friend whom I trusted, who broke bread with me, has lifted up his heel and turns turned against me, 
end quote. There's also a theme scattered throughout the Psalter about silence in the face of accusers. So that's the content angle and the theme angle. I also wanted to touch on Acts here. Uh, Psalm 2, as I said before, is often numbered as a psalm of the Passion. I don't think it fits the pattern terribly well, but the reason it shows up so much is because of the opening verses, and especially verse 2. Why do the kings of the earth rise up in revolt, and the princes plot together against the Lord and against his anointed? End quote. The prayer of the disciples in Acts 4 directly connects the first two verses of the Passion of Jesus. So, if you're going to follow the biblical lead, you've got to include this one in the count. In a similar way, Psalm 109 gets looped in. Now, this is kind of an odd psalm. Most of us don't encounter this one very much, because it's not a very nice psalm. This is one of the psalms of imprecation, or to use regular language, it's a cursing psalm. It's a prayer for vengeance. However, the reason this one gets pulled in, and this is a very strong tradition running through uh, Augustine and Jerome into Cassiodorus, is because of Acts 1, verse 20. When the apostles get together to select a replacement for Judas, they refer to his betrayal in this way, quote, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his household become desolate, and let there be no one to live in it, and let another take his position of overseer. And overseer here is the word episcopae, uh, the word used in the New Testament for bishop, end quote. These two quotations, one of them is from Psalm 69, verse 25, and the other one, that second one, is from Psalm 109, verse 8. And so on the strength of that, Psalm 109 was read by the early church as a curse against Judas. However, they didn't stop there, and that brings us to a really important point that we do have to talk about. They understood this psalm as specifically a curse against Judas, but more generally as a curse against the Jews and the entire Jewish people. Both Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 paint the psalmist's enemies in the worst possible light. And we see this in many of the other Passion Psalms as well. And these lines were consistently applied to the Jews and became a major plank in the church's historic platform of anti-Semitism. Cassiodorus and Augustine and Jerome say some really foul stuff about the Jews and about their utter rejection of Christ and therefore of God because of how they chose to interpret these verses. There's a bitter irony there, that it's from words in the Jewish scriptures that the church took as license to hate Jews. This is a part of our spiritual heritage that, that is an intolerable. We have to reject it. I don't think that we need to reject this way of reading the Psalms because they've been read in this way, but it does mean that we have to be very sensitive about how we construct the adversaries, the oppositional figures that we encounter in the Psalms. All right, so what do we do with this information? How do we use these Psalms to help us understand more deeply what's going on in the Passion of Christ? I want to make four points here to tackle this. First, the Psalms taken as a whole present us with the figure of a righteous sufferer. I know I've referred to this before, 
But John Day, in his short little introduction to the Psalms, refers to the individual lament psalms as the backbone of the Psalter. And he's right. And when you look at the Psalms as a whole, as a corpus, you perceive an individual, someone who speaks in the first person as I, who recounts experiences of difficulty, hardship, and being under attack, but who nevertheless consistently places his trust in God. If you then link this individual up with the individual constructed in the Suffering Servant Songs of Isaiah, which, let's not forget, are themselves modeled on these psalms, you perceive the pattern of a larger-than-life personality who obeys the will of God, yet who is afflicted even unto death. Finding this kind of character emerging from these texts was really important for the early church. I think so often we forget the situation that the early church found itself in, particularly in its context within Second Temple Judaism. We forget the challenges that they were facing from the people around them, and particularly the interpretive challenges. The early church knew in its soul that Jesus was the Messiah. The problem is, if you do a straightforward reading of the standard Messiah texts, Jesus was coming up quite a bit short on quite a number of the key qualifications. Based on the standard reading of the standard Hebrew Bible texts, the Messiah is a Jewish king in the line of David who restores Jewish sovereignty over the land promised to them by God, kicks out the Romans, throws off the yoke of foreign rulers, establishes peace and prosperity, and makes sure that proper worship of God alone is going on in the temple. Then, we take a look at Jesus. This guy is, by all accounts, a carpenter's kid. He's a rural rabbi from Galilee, and while he does get a following, he's not a king, he's not a governor, he's not even a mayor of anywhere. Not only does he not kick out the Romans, he gets captured by his own people, handed over to the Romans, and gets executed as a criminal. And, not only does he get executed as a criminal, if you want to be really precise about it, his specific manner of death is itself a pretty big scandal, thanks to Deuteronomy chapter one, uh, 21, which says this, quote, When someone is convicted of a crime punishable by death and is executed, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse may not remain all night upon the tree. You shall bury him that same day, for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. End quote. So, if you have the expectation of the Messiah as a great Davidic conqueror, it's really not hard to see why a lot of the Second Temple Jewish contemporaries of the church were not very impressed with Jesus. This is the background we're working with. This is the theological challenge that the church had to address if it intended to confess Jesus as the Messiah. Now, they were absolutely convinced that this was the case, but making the case from Scripture was going to take some work. And this is where the figure of the righteous sufferer from the Psalms becomes so important. In turning to the Psalms, the church was doing two very important things. First, they were lifting up an alternative powerful presence out of the text. Successful heroic conqueror is one option, yes, but Scripture also gives us this other very different image. If this image is the one that we take as primary, and then the other messianic texts are read in light of this one, well, then things start making a lot more sense, and a case for Jewish fulfilling the role of biblical Messiah 
becomes a lot more possible. Second, if the Davidic character of the Psalms are stressed, then you're reinforcing this notion that a Davidic Messiah isn't just a successful king in the line and style of David, you're also reinforcing the fact that David himself had a lot of ups and downs, and is the one who writes so powerfully and persuasively about this righteous, suffering figure. Furthermore, a key psalm here is Psalm 22. Because of its reference to the piercing of the hands and the feet, you can draw a direct line between this righteous, suffering figure and the crucifixion of Christ, and use it to challenge that passage from Deuteronomy about hanging people being under God's curse. So, that's the first point. The Psalms of the Passion were important for the early church because they, along with the rest of the Psalter, present a composite image of a righteous sufferer that nuances, challenges, and complicates more simplistic readings of who and what the promised Davidic Messiah was like. Second big point. There is a direct link between the Passion narratives in the Gospels and the Psalms of the Passion because the Gospel writers were using the Psalms and were using them as lenses for recording historical details and for making theological sense of what was happening to Jesus. I need to be careful here and to phrase this properly so that it doesn't come out wrong or get misunderstood. Some people who are looking for the historical Jesus think that any time something in a gospel happens that has a clear Old Testament referent, then you have to throw it out because it's inauthentic. They'll tell you, oh, that didn't really happen. They just wrote that in there because of what was in the Old Testament. On one hand, I can see how people could say that, how it has a, a certain kind of logic. But on the other, I think that the overly skeptical approach is missing something important about how historical events are remembered and how they're remembered by communities, especially communities making theological sense out of them. The passion narratives give us details. Some of these are details of events that would happen at almost any execution conducted in the pre-modern world. Others seem to be particular details of this one particular execution. And bits from the Psalms give us both. So, think for a moment about the dividing and casting lots for the clothing that shows up in Psalm 22 and in all of the passion accounts. Is this a detail with a basis in history, or did the gospel writers just make it up based on the psalm? I'm going to argue that this is an actual historical detail, but that it's an actual historical detail that is being read actively through the psalm. Here's what I mean. Dead people, as a rule, don't need clothes. Picking anything of value off dead bodies is common to all human cultures. Furthermore, in a lot of the pre-modern societies that I'm familiar with, it's kind of a standard rule that the executioner gets the clothes of the person he's just killed. And since killing people is a pretty messy business, you get the clothes off of them first as much as you can so that as little goes to waste as possible. Do I think the Roman soldiers stripped Jesus of his clothes and gambled for them? Absolutely. Why wouldn't they? It's not like he was going to be using them again. <laughs> so... I see this as a historical detail because it reflects a standard widespread practice that we would expect to see in an execution of this sort. We see it in the psalm for the same reason. 
the psalmist is depicting typical brutalities that exist at executions. The Gospel writers identify a specific overlap between these two generalities and borrow the language of the psalm as a means for connecting this common brutality in a specific way that advances the thesis that these brutalities weren't simply random, but that this was a scriptural plan unfolding. I think a similar case can be made for the sour wine episode and its connection to Psalm 69. A historical nugget prompted the connection to a more general description of thirst and bad wine, and the church chose to capture and remember that detail specifically because the psalm prompted them to see it within a larger framework, as being not just a random event, but a sign that all of this was unfolding according to a larger and prior pattern. The exact same things can be said of the taunting of the crowd, recorded in the Gospels, that occurs borrowing the precise language of the Psalms. So, that's my second point. The Gospel writers were using the Psalms as a lens for what was going on in the crucifixion, and have remembered some very specific historical details from it using psalmic language. Third, the Passion Psalms were important because of their interiority. They get into the emotions and the bodily feelings of what this sort of experience feels like. It gives us emotional language to connect to in order to consider what Jesus was going through and what he must have felt. Within Christian spirituality, there is an affective strand, particularly arising in the high medieval period, that goes into great detail about what it would have felt like to be at or in the crucifixion. The Stations of the Cross, uh, in fact, are this kind of spiritual tradition. This point seems pretty evident to me. The Passion Psalms get into the head and heart of the person suffering and help us to get there vicariously. So, I don't know if there's anything further that needs to be said on that account. Fourth and finally, at the end of the day, the Passion Psalms are about patterns. Both God and humanity tend to work in particular ways. By looking across time and across the biblical text, we see fundamental patterns about how we act and about how God acts. Patterns inherent in the Psalms are acted out in the Gospels because they both attest the character, habits, and patterns of the human and the divine. Humans strive to kill that which we do not understand, and we don't understand God. Our reaction to the incarnate presence of God was to kill the messenger, who was, in fact, the message itself. And yet, God, too, has a pattern of bringing joy from despair, of bringing reconciliation out of wrong, and bringing resurrection out of death. So, that's what we have to say today about the Psalms of the Passion, uh, which was a topic inspired by the selection of Psalm 22 as the psalm appointed for Track 2 of Proper 7 in Year C of the Revised Common Lectionary. If you enjoyed today's show, please tell your friends about it and leave a review on iTunes. You can find more of my thoughts at www.saintbeadproductions.com and follow me on Twitter, and there's a link you can follow on my blog and in the show notes. Until next time, I'm Derek Olson for St. Bede Productions. The path you must follow is in the Psalms. Never leave it. O oh God, make speed to save me. 
to save me, O oh Lord, make haste to help me, to help me. 